Open your Bibles up to Matthew 21 because we are going to be looking at a turning point in history. A turning point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, a turning point in the history of the nation of Israel, yea, a turning point in the history of mankind. We resume our study this morning of the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was a major, major turning point. The nation of Israel was absolutely white hot with messianic expectation. There was a buzz. Rome, who had oppressed the people of Israel for a long, long time, there was this growing sense of of wanting to be done with this, to throw off the yoke of Rome. And in Christ... The nation thought they had their answer. Jesus, for his part in this, entered into the city in the way in which he did, most deliberately, most spectacularly, in order to disclose publicly, officially, once and for all to the nation his claim to be the Messiah, to draw the nation to a place where they must make an official decision. The Gospels are very, very clear that that the nation and its leadership had already rejected Christ and his ministry, but it had been an individual rejection, not a collective, national, official rejection. But now is the time. In the plan and providence of God, now was the time. In Jerusalem the capital of the nation. There in the temple, the very centerpiece of national life. At the time of the feast of Passover, the greatest gathering of Jewish people from around the world, this was the time. This was the time. And so as the city thronged with pilgrims, Jesus entered in made his official statement presentation, called to the nation for a decision. And, of course, we know tragically what they decided. So this morning we're returning again to the events of that particular week and in particular that day. And there are three phases that I want to look at with you, three phases of this triumphal entry and the official offer of the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel. We began last week and looked at one of the three, and so just quickly to review that and and to get you, you know, up to speed again, let me read for you verses 1 through 3. And we're calling this phase of Jesus' official offer of the kingdom the previous preparation phase. The previous preparation phase. The verse 1 of Matthew 21. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. It's Sunday morning. 
The Sabbath has passed. The Passover pilgrims have have swarmed and flocked into the city of Jerusalem and its environs. Jesus and his 12 disciples, having spent the Sabbath in Bethany, located a little less than a mile and a half from the city gates, up and just over the ridge of the Mount of Olives, which runs north and south east of the city. But it's Sunday morning now. It's time for Jesus to make his entrance into the city. The city is, is a buzz. It's a wash with expectation. They know he's coming, and they know when he's coming. And so he sets out with his disciples. There's a crowd of pilgrims there from Bethany that are accompanying him. And and as they proceed along the way, Jesus instructs two of his disciples to go into a nearby village there called Bethpage and to secure some transportation for him. Their job was to, to bring a donkey and its colt back so that Jesus could ride on this colt into the city. Jesus tells them that when they are challenged for going into a village and and untying a donkey that's tied there publicly in the square that they don't own and and walking away with it, they are to give the countersign, the Lord has need of them and the owners will release them to you. And so that's exactly what happens. Into the village they go, they are challenged, they give the countersign and the animals are released into their charge. Why? 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 Why did Jesus arrange to have a a donkey, the colt of a donkey, available to him in order to ride into the city of Jerusalem? He had walked from Galilee over a hundred miles. It certainly couldn't be because he's tired. It couldn't be because he's tired. And in fact, Matthew makes it very, very clear for us this morning. He lets us know that that Jesus had choreographed this event down to the most minute details. Why? In order to fulfill the ancient messianic prophecies. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And that takes us to the next phase, prophetic proclamation. Previous preparation, now prophetic proclamation. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is a citation from a messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. In specific, it is from Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. This is a prophecy that was very commonly known among the people. This is a prophecy that was commonly discussed among the rabbis as to what it could mean. The rabbis were confused. It was a messianic prophecy. Everybody agreed to that. 
The confusion for the rabbis was simply this. How do we put together a prophecy of the coming Messiah, which is so obviously one of of humble entrance, with the great messianic prophecy of Daniel, chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, where he comes as the conquering warrior king on the clouds of heaven? How do we put that together? And the rabbis talked about this over and over and over again. And the answer that they they basically came to was simply this. They said that, that if the nation was righteous then he would come on the clouds of heaven as the, as the warrior king. But if the nation was not, he would come on a donkey. He would come on a donkey. As they say, this prophecy was well-known, frequently discussed. I'm sure like, like most questions in theology, people had their own ideas and opinions and it was a, the point of it all is it was common knowledge. It was common knowledge. It wasn't hidden away in the, in the dusty confines of an Old Testament um, role somewhere. But it was something that was very on the, much on the forefront of the mind and thinking of the people of that day. The point of all of that is, is that when Jesus fulfilled this prophecy... When Jesus entered into the city on this cult, immediately the prophecy would come to the mind of all who were there that day. All who were there that day. This was a prophetic proclamation of who he was. Now it's interesting and I believe instructive to note that as Matthew writing many decades, several decades after the fact, doesn't quote the prophecy of Zechariah word for word. He, he actually leaves things out and adds something in. And it's instructive to us, I believe, as we, as we look at that, to, to compare the original prophecy with what Matthew records for us and to see what Matthew leaves out and what Matthew puts in. So rather than have to keep your thumb in one place and your finger in another, I've reproduced it for you. If you'd like to flip, you may. But I've got it there for you. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's interesting, I think, to recognize the reality that that Matthew begins his citation of this prophecy not by Quoting it verbatim, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. In fact, what he does is he, he lifts a piece of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11, where it's written there, say to the daughter of Zion. Now, 
The expression, the daughter of Zion, is, is another way to just refer to Jerusalem. Say to Jerusalem, Matthew cites, say to Jerusalem. Now, why why does he exclude the original part of Zechariah's prophecy with its, with its exhortation for the people to rejoice and to shout in, in joy and triumph? The answer is that they were not truly ready to receive the king. This was not a moment of, of rejoicing and triumph, even though it appeared to be such. It appeared to be such. In reality, it is a moment of profound grief and sadness. In other words, we could, we could sort of uh, translate this uh, and to say to, the, say to Jerusalem, verse 5, say to Jerusalem, you missed it. Say to Jerusalem, you missed it. You missed it. He goes on, by the way, and, and notice he leaves out the, the statement that the king is just and endowed with salvation. Do you see that? Your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. And, and Matthew just passes over that part of the prophecy. Why? Why? The answer is simply this. He is not coming to them with salvation. He is coming to them and will bring about their condemnation. Their condemnation. Why? For they failed to see the time of their visitation. They missed it. They missed it. Further, Matthew ignores the balance of the prophecy in verse 10. 9 and 10 are are one prophetic statement about the, the Messiah King. And Matthew just leaves that off. It is that portion of the prophecy that, that, spa, that speaks of the, of the reign and rule of the Messiah in which he will rule over the nations of the world and he will bring war to an end. A fulfillment that is still future. Still future. People ask me sometimes, they say, well, where, do, where does the, the church fit into Matthew's gospel? Where does the church fit into Matthew's gospel? All right, you ready? Here's the answer. It fits into the white space in your Bible between the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 9. The end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10, there's a little white space in your Bible. Israel, And that's where the church fits. Unforeseen to the Old Testament prophets. Think with me. Matthew is writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Every word he writes is under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It is there because God wants it there. Because God wants it there. Beyond that, Matthew is writing from the perspective of of history. He's writing in, in somewhere around A.D. 50, in, in 20 years, approximately two decades, removed from the actual events of that day. And so when he records this, 
He knows exactly what has happened. He knows exactly what has happened. He knows what portion of of Zechariah's prophecy has been literally fulfilled. And he records that for us. And he knows that these other portions of Zechariah's prophecy have not. But, beloved, they will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled just as literally as Jesus coming into the city on a colt of a donkey. Someday. Someday. Listen, if Matthew wanted to communicate to us that Jesus' triumphal entry brought in the messianic kingdom, that is, that we are in the kingdom now, he would have had a perfect opportunity to say it. And it's like he stands on his head not to, to make it very, very clear. This should have been a day of rejoicing. This should have been The fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And yet it's not. It is not. It is a day of profound tragedy. Why? Because Israel missed her opportunity. She missed her opportunity. The crowds are looking for the conquering warrior king. Jesus offers them a suffering servant mounted on the back of a colt. Scriptures tell us, by the way, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, he is coming again, and when he comes again, he will ride the war horse, the white horse. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. But not then. And not yet. Verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees and, and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And see, this is the tragedy. This is the tragedy of it all. Outwardly, it looks so good. And it's so wrong. It's so far from reality. Beloved, the crowds that day were massive. Absolutely massive. The Jewish historian Josephus writes that there were approximately two and one half million Jewish people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area at that time of the year to celebrate the Passover. Now, modern historians uh, seem to have some trouble with Josephus' numbers, and, and one of the reasons they have trouble with his numbers is that a, that a survey done in 1961 in Galilee, there was only 190,000 residents in Galilee in 1961. So they say it would be impossible for there to be two and a half million pilgrims and residents of the city of Jerusalem. And certainly the city of Jerusalem itself 
by where the walls were had a population, a, a resident population in that time of about 80,000 people. So did it swell to two and a half million? Josephus says yes. He was there. But even if that number somehow is, is exaggerated, you get an idea. A city that normally had a normal everyday population of 80,000 is now swells to this massive number. Massive number. What happened that morning? What happened that morning? Let me, let me see if I can put it together for you um, by harmonizing the, the, the four gospel accounts. This, this event is so significant. It is recorded in all four gospels. And they all lend a piece to the picture. So rather than flipping you back and forth and so forth, let me just sort of walk you through it. Let me kind of walk you through the events of that morning so you get a feel for this most incredible day. As we said, it's Sunday morning. It's now Sunday morning, reasonably early Sunday morning, and Jesus and his disciples are setting out for the city of Jerusalem. There is a crowd that is accompanying them from Bethany. It would be pilgrims who would have, who would have either had, per, or, or pilgrims who had stayed in Bethany because they were renting a room there or had relations or whatever, and it would have been Bethany's citizens. They're stoked, they're, they're pumped. Because Bethany is, is, the, is the place where Lazarus and his sister Martha and Mary lived. That Lazarus that Jesus called forth from the tomb just a few weeks ago. They're setting out along what's called the Jericho Road. It's a windy road. It, 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 it comes from Jerusalem and, and up in the, the west side of the Mount of Olives and over the crest and then back down on the east side of the, of the Mount of Olives. And it winds its way down more than 3,000 feet to the city of Jericho, the ancient city of Jericho. It's somewhere between 15 to 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. So they're setting out from Bethany. Bethany is just over the crest of the Mount of Olives. So they set out together. As they, as they begin to, to start to come up towards the crest, Jesus tells two of his disciples, go into this village of Bethphage. Now, a, a village that is obscure to us in history. They still, they're not sure where it was. Small village. Bethphage, the house of figs, is what the name means. Jesus instructs two of his disciples. I think it's Peter and John. But he instructs the two of them to, to go into Bethphage, and he gives them the countersign, and he says, bring this, this donkey and its colt. To me. So the crowd, as it, as it approaches Bethphage, the, the disciples having been sent on ahead, they get the animals and they, and they return. And there is Jesus. He's walking and the crowd is, is beginning to grow. Because pilgrims have come up and out of the city of Jerusalem and they're coming up the Jericho Road to meet Jesus. They know he's coming into the city. They know he's coming at this time into the city. They sort of converge on him right there. You see it, verse 9, it says the crowd's going ahead of him and those who followed. He's in the middle of the crowd now. There's the crowd that had accompanied him and there's the crowd that comes up to meet him. And so he's, he's now in the middle of this crowd. They join together. One big mob. 
moving down the Jericho Road towards the city of Jerusalem. The crowd puts him on the colt. First, they throw some of their, it says here, coats, but the idea is their cloak, their outer garment. They, they place it on the, the colt. They place it on the mother, the donkey, and they place it on the colt, but they put him on the colt. He's now head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd, and he's proceeding down towards the city. They crest the Mount of Olives. As soon as they crest the Mount of Olives, they would get their first glimpse of the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is dominated by the Temple Mount. It is the most massive of of man-made structures, and it sits right on the east side of the city. There it is, rising above the skyline. That, by the way, is a picture from what's called the, uh, it's at the Israel Museum. It's a scale model of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. I don't know if you can see, but way back in the uh, right-hand corner of the picture, you can see a person for scale. This is a big model. It's a big model. But what you are looking at in that that model is you you are looking from the Mount of Olives down onto the city of Jerusalem, and in particular, you are looking at the East Gate or the Golden Gate entrance into the city. This is how you get into the city of Jerusalem in those days. By the way, the, uh, the eastern gate was uh, walled up by the uh, Muslims in A.D. 810. It remains walled to this day, but someday it will burst open again and Messiah will enter the city. Luke tells us in his gospel that when they crest the Mount of Olives and this magnificent sight comes into view, that Jesus begins to weep. He begins to, to weep over the city. Luke chapter 19, I'll just read it for you. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps over their failure to recognize. And he prophesied the Roman destruction of the city that would come in A.D. 70. Now at this point, the crowd, still oblivious to the reality of what is going on, but consumed with messianic passion, they begin to become overcome with emotion at the view of the temple and and the Messiah, and it's all coming together for them. And so they begin to pave his way on the road by by throwing their cloaks, it says, into the road. So they they cast their cloaks down into the road in front of him. Now, that's that's difficult for us to to sort of envision, but but, but in the Eastern culture, it, it, it is what one would do for royalty or for a conquering hero. 1959, President Eisenhower flew to Tehran, Iran, and to, to go into the city and to, and to speak to the Shah there. 
And, the, and I think it was 10 miles. It's, I believe that's right. But the distance from the airport to the city, the people poured out and brought their Persian carpets from their homes and, and paved the road in Persian carpets for Eisenhower's motorcade to drive over. 750,000 people turned out that day in 1959. The people lay their cloaks in the road, paving the road, a red carpet, if you will. Beyond that, they're, they're, they're cutting and bringing palm fronds, and they're, and they're waving them, and they're, and they're throwing them into the road too. Not, not like big branches, you know, that would be difficult to step over. Just, a, you know, little kind of things. Throwing them into the road. And they're, and they're loud, very loud, and, and, and very excitedly, they're, they're voicing their messianic aspirations. Here is the promised son of David, the, the one who has long been, been foretold. The one who can feed our armies, right? A, a couple of sardines and a, and a couple of tortillas, and, and he can feed the army. And if any of us are killed, he raises you from the dead. Listen, if there was ever a time in their mind, if there was ever a time to throw off the imperial yoke of Rome, today was the day. Today is the day. This, this environment here is, is absolutely awash in, in, in Jewish political fervor. The Lazarus miracle has, has stoked the crowds, but it has become bent, it has become twisted, it has become linked to, to the political aspirations of, of this uh, uh, servant people. It is explosive situation. It is politically explosive. It is the Passover. Of all the feasts of Israel, the Passover is the feast in which the nation is reminded of God's deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. This is the, this is the celebration when their God set them free. And more than any other time, the nationalistic passions ran hot at the Passover. People lay their garments in the road. They bring the palm branches. And by the way, palm branches, why palm branches? Palm branches had become by this time a a sign of nationalism. It was a sign of, of, of nationalism. When the temple was rededicated after, after being defiled during the Maccabean era, palms fronds were used as part of the celebration of the rededication of the temple, the cleansing and rededication of the temple during the Maccabean period a couple of hundred years prior. During both of the wars with Rome, the, 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 the wars that followed this time period, that is AD 66 to 70, the first Jewish war, the second Jewish war that went from AD 132 to 135, the rebels minted their own coins during that time. And the symbol or the sign or the insignia that they chose for their coins to bear was the palm frond. was the palm. Waving palm fronds is not a, not a neutral activity here. This is not just something, you know, gee, if we had a handkerchief, we would have waved that. But we'll go with palm fronds. This is a very, very overt and outward sign of a, of a, of a nationalistic 
desire for deliverance. Be like waving little American flags. Okay? Their national hope is focused in this one. In this one. And Jesus enters into the city. Now, the, the text indicates that certainly, and particularly in its original Greek, it indicates that it, was, that it was a time of confusion, a time of enthusiasm, that, that it was just going off all over the place. Let me just read you how it's recorded in the four Gospels. You have it here in front of you, Matthew 21, verse 9. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after, so you get the idea he's in the middle of the crowd, were crying out and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the verbs here are imperfect verbs. It's, this is not just one time it's said. It's over and over and over. And you get the idea that it's an escalating volume. Mark's gospel, Mark 11, verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Luke records it this way in Luke 19 and verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And John records this, John 12 and verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So you get an idea that it's not just one united uh, refrain, although there are, there are united ideas being expressed. Hosanna. It's an Aramaic phrase. Essentially what it means is, is save now. Save now. It's drawn from Psalm 118 and verse 25. Clearly a messianic psalm. Beyond that, there, there are Old Testament prophetic statements that are, that are brought to, to bear here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, it comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. They call him the son of David, the, even the king of Israel. All of their national aspirations, all of the Old Testament prophecies that they had now sort of bent and twisted to their own perverted use, come to bear on him. He is the locus of their national hope. Previous preparation, prophetic proclamation, third phase, public presentation. Public presentation. When he, verse 10, Matthew 21, when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? Now, it's little wonder that the city was stirred. By the way, that, that, uh, that verb stirred here is really a very strong word. It's used of, of um, what happens to a city in an earthquake. Actually, over in uh, Matthew 27, verse 51, it's used there, and it speaks of an earthquake, the city being shaken as it, uh, there by an earthquake. Here it's as if by an earthquake. The city is, is, is rattled by the events of that day. Listen, the last time the city was, was rattled like this 
was uh, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 3. You remember when the Magi rode into town looking for him who was king of the Jews? The city was, in that case, they, it says they were agitated, and they were agitated because they were deathly afraid of, of the insane, murderous jealousy of Herod. Here, the city is, is in such a buzz, and there is such, there's such an outroar going on that there's, there's no place within this city that you can't hear what's going on. And so the people that are not part of it are just drawn to the excitement, right? Everybody, everybody likes a parade. So you start to hear this thing going, and it, and it draws the residents. And they, and they gather, and they pull together, and the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And they want to know, who is this guy? I think verse 11 indicates a state of confusion. The crowds were saying... This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The son of David, the king of Israel, the the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, they don't exactly know. One has one opinion, one has another. Now listen, there's something else going on here. There's something else going on here. The crowds, they are, they are, they are whipped up to a, to a fervor here. There is an enthusiasm. There is a, there's a, a vocal outcry of support and And the leadership of the nation is determined to squelch it. The leadership of the nation, they are are unmoved in their opposition to Jesus. They are unpersuaded by all of this. And they want to tamp this down. They want to stop it from happening. I believe the reason they want to stop it from happening is because if this goes unchecked, Rome is going to come down on them. This is Passover. This is, this is the time for revolts and rebellions. And Rome is not so keen on rebellions. So the leadership of the nation, and I, and I get this uh, most directly from John chapter 11 and verse 48. I won't turn you there. Check it on your own. But there they say, we have got to do something about this man, or Rome will come and will take away our place and our position. So they try to shut it down. They try to shut it down. Now, the first to express their disapproval doesn't appear here in Matthew's gospel. We'll move through it just quickly, but so you get a feel for it. It's the Pharisees. Actually, the Pharisees are part of the parade, not willingly, okay? but they are part of the parade. They're the doctrinal police of the nation of Israel. Okay? They're the ones that kind of walk along and, and are always tisk-tisking because you, know, you don't have it just quite right. And so they speak to Jesus, and and this is recorded for us on Luke chapter 19, verse 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. Now, Jesus normally did tell his disciples to be quiet, right? He would do all these things. There would be a a crowd would start to gather. He would disperse the crowd. He'd tell the people, be quiet. Uh, Don't tell anybody what I just did and so forth. And so they're basically saying, hey, do it the way you've always done it before. And that is put a lid on this thing. Put a lid on it. But Jesus responds to them in Luke chapter 19 and verse 40. Jesus answered and he says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. What is he saying? He's saying this to them. In Scripture, inanimate objects are often portrayed as 
calling out praise and glory to God. Praise and glory to God. Jesus is clearly making a declaration of his oneness with Yahweh. He is one with the Father. He is declaring his divinity here. When he says to them, I tell you, if this crowd becomes quiet, nature itself will cry out. Nature only cries out to God. He's declaring himself to be God. And you can imagine how well that went over. Matthew tells us and records for us here the the conflict that he has now upon entering the temple mount with the Sadducees. Verse 14, I skip over verses 12 and 13 of Matthew 21 because we'll pick it up next time. It's the events actually of the next day. But here beginning in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Listen, Jesus enters the temple mount. He goes to the court of the Gentiles. It's a large area on the south side of the temple there on the temple mount. There in the court of the Gentiles, he finds those who, because of their physical infirmities and afflictions, are are prohibited from coming close. They are, they are outcasts. They, they cannot come close to God. Now, the Sadducees control the Temple Mount. That's their territory. And so Jesus comes right into their territory, and the first thing he does is he heals all those who have been put off, pushed away, banished because of their physical infirmities, and he heals them. And believe me, when he, when he gives the blind sight and he, and he heals the lame You can imagine that the crowd gets amped up even more, even more. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, that is a reference to this massive healing that he does right then and there to all of those who desire to be close to God and into the temple and cannot because they have been prohibited because of their physical afflictions. When the, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children, check that out, who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Listen, the kids pick it up. The enthusiasm of the adults carries over to the children, and now the children are running around yelling these things. This place is turning into a nuthouse. And the Sadducees want Jesus to shut it down. Tell these kids to shut up. You know how well that went over, right? Just a a few days before that, right? When the the disciples didn't want the kids to come to him. Yeah, it didn't go over well there. It's not going to go over well here either. Verse 16. He rebukes them. And he said... uh, They became indignant. That is, the Sadducees become indignant, and they say to Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Verse 16. And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Stop right there. Notice it says it's the Sadducees and the scribes. The scribes are the experts in the Scripture. They're the ones who have given their life to the study of the Scripture, to the, to the copying of the Scripture, to the preservation of the Scripture. Jesus says to them, to the experts in the Scripture, have 
you never read. Listen, it doesn't get any more poke in your eye than that. Okay, that is a finger straight, you know, finger jab right in your eye. You should know this. You should expect this. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. He rebukes them. He rebukes them and and cites to them Psalm 8 and verse 2. Psalm 8 is a psalm given to extolling the praise and glory of the Creator God. It speaks of the mighty works of Yahweh. And again, Jesus applies it to Himself. To Himself. Listen, Sometimes people say, Jesus never declared himself to be God. Anybody who would make that statement has either never read the New Testament or has read the New Testament with blinders on. There are repeatedly, he clearly declares himself to be God. And this is just one more. Just one more. Have you never read Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. They are praising me rightly, for I am God. I am God. Verse 17. It's late in the afternoon now. It's late in the afternoon. Jesus looks around the temple mount here. He's done all these healings and so forth. He sees all the the shops that sell the sacrificial animals and the the tables of the money changers. They're all put away for the day. Business is done. But he observes it all. He'll be back tomorrow to take care of that problem. He left them, verse 17, and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. He turns and he leaves the city back up the Jericho Road, back over the crest of the Mount of Olives, back into the safety of the village of Bethany and the home of Lazarus, where he'll rest securely for the night. Beloved, listen, the crowds and even the disciples did not understand this event. They did not. They didn't understand it because they had preconceived ideas They had comfortable categories into which they had confined Jesus and his call upon their lives. They're looking for a Jesus to to save their nation when they should have been looking for a Messiah to save their souls. How like them we can be. How like them we can be. We create our own idea of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. We see him as the answer to life's problems. Make us comfortable. Solve our problems. Make our hurts go away. There is a time coming. There is a time coming. The Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall be with the Lord 
near. Always with the Lord. When that time comes, life's difficulties will be no more. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we have a suffering servant who came first and foremost to save us from our sin and to transform us into the image of Christ, the image of himself, to to make us ready when the kingdom comes. Let us not fall into the same type of error looking for the wrong Jesus. Let's pray. Father, again, I feel like we're just scratching the surface of the events of this week, this day. So much going on here. This is the culmination of of so much of biblical prophecy. Now, Father, I pray that as we as we work through these passages together, that you would help us to be freed of our preconceptions. Let the Scriptures speak to us fresh. May your Spirit apply it where needed in our hearts. Let us understand the, the depth of depravity and, the, and the, the difficulty of unbelief, how, how obstinate it can be. And Lord, may you soften our hearts. I pray for, for those that are here this morning, Father, who do not know Christ, to whom he is a historical figure but not their Savior. They know about him, but they do not know him, and indeed they are not known by him. And, Father, may you open their eyes to the truth. May you, may you incline their hearts to embrace the Savior today. Oh, Lord, I beg you to save them. In Jesus' name, amen.